well, you're turning in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter number 3. And let me give you a little bit of a background of why we are here this morning and not in Matthew chapter number 6. I, I pray on a regular basis that the Lord would lead me in what this church needs to hear. Not so much in what we want to hear. And it's amazing that God answers that prayer uh, so quickly. <laughs> and God has kind of given me this direction that I think is important for our church seeing the season that we are in right now, that God is doing some great things. Let me, let me say this to you. Uh, we don't apologize for any of this up here when worship is going on. And I know it's, you know, sometimes it's not what people are used to, uh, but uh, it's, it's the spirit moving in this church. And, and I love it. I sit back and I'm just humbled and in awe. And I'm going to tell you something. If this stuff up here makes you nervous, where do you get to heaven? And, and you're face to face with him. Uh, it, this ain't a drop in the bucket, what, what, this, what it's fixing to be. And, uh, and so I love this. This, this is what the, church ought to be a little bit of heaven on earth, amen, yeah. uh, where you get just overtaken by who he is. Uh, and what a very fitting psalm to open up with. Yeah. What is man that you are mindful of him? It's a great question. So I think God is leading us for the next three weeks to kind of evaluate two questions. And these are two questions I want you to really, really take to heart. They, listen, they don't deserve a quick answer. You've got to think them through. You've got to pray them through. The first one is this. Why the church I attend? Why? This church. And number two, how would I affirm my answer to number one? Now the narrative that is before us in 2 Timothy chapter number 3, Paul is giving a warning to Timothy, this young preacher, concerning the last days, the deficiency of godliness and the defectiveness or the defective methods that are making inroads into the church. A deficiency of godliness and defective methods that are making kind of this inroad into the church. Now let's look verse number 1 down to verse number 9 this morning, if you would. And if you're taking notes, the, the title of our lesson is The Patternless Church. Before we can understand what the pattern church is, we need to get a good firm grip of what the patternless church is. So verse number one, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people 
will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And emphatically, Paul says, avoid such people. So with the obvious regression, I ask this question, is there hope for the church through reform? During the downgrade, during this downgrade that we find ourselves in, this regression, is there hope for the church through reform? And I think the answer is obvious that reform is possible through repentance and rehabilitation. And so with this downgrade, During this downgrade, Christians can be assured of the certainty that Christ is building His church. Now the pattern church in the New Testament is out of date now. The pattern church is not a popular church. So when it comes to doing church, and that's a very common used phrase, doing church today... The wheel of the church has been reinvented and now we have reorganized everything to suit the culture of the world. So with marked moral breakdowns and deficiency of godliness and movements that are accumulating strength through these defective methods... We no longer have a pattern church, but we have a poor church. And it's emerging now. And so I want to answer the question this morning, why? Why is it a poor church? Number one, the patternless church is a detached church. That's why it's a poor church. Notice in verse number one, but understand this. But understand this, the church needs to get its head out of the sand. Paul demands attention here. Jesus rebuked this intentional disregard for the times surrounding the church in Matthew chapter 16 verses 1 through 4. But understand this, that in the last days... A very broad term. This term covers the time that spanned from Christ's first coming all the way to the time prior to His second coming in which we find ourselves now. So we've been in the last days for quite some time now. And these last days, Paul said, are difficult days. They're perilous days. They're an atmosphere that is untamable. It's savagery is what we're in. We're in a savaged time. It's like an animal that you cannot tame. It's like an ocean that you cannot tame. We are in those times. 
Paul said, I need you to understand this, Timothy. Paul told us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, that the last days will be days of deflection from the faith. There will be this great falling away from the faith. Men will heap to themselves teachers that do what? Itch your ears instead of reach your heart. Peter comes along behind Paul in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, and he said, People in the last days will scoff. They will not take serious spiritual or eternal matters. They'll just do whatever they want to do. And so Paul is telling us here in verse number 1, That the patternless church is a detached church. They don't realize that times are getting harder to deal with. That the times in which we live in are energized by this demonic influence. With an increased intensity of evil becoming deeper and accepted and promoted by a culture. And Paul said all of this affects the church, Timothy. And Paul said, I demand you to understand this. And so a poor church is a detached church. Number two, he said, a patternless church is a dead church. I want you to note in verse number two, and I want you to get this. Two words tell us the problem. Two words define for us the issue today. Do you know what they are? Four people. So it's clear that we're not dealing with bad times. What's clear is is that we're dealing with bad people. John Calvin says, and I quote, It should be noted what danger Paul has in view. Not war, not famine, not disease, but wicked and depraved people. The people in the counterfeit church, they live selfish and corrosive lives. These vices that Paul gives to us, and it's a genre in in biblical literature. He gives us these vices in verse 2 and verse 3 and verse number 4. These vices that Paul mentions serve to make a, a very strong contrast in the behavior of God's people and Christ's church. And so Paul is saying, this is what a counterfeit church looks like. This is what Jesus' church looks like. So here's what you need to understand, and I'm going to break these vices down. People live dominated by three prominent vices, and they're very, very current. These are very, as we like to be a part of this kind of church, very relevant for our, for our age. And here they are. Here's the first vice. Individualism. People do not want to take responsibility. There's no commitments anymore. All they are worried about is themselves. There, there is this atmosphere of individualism that is, and let me tell you something, it's creeping now into the church. Number two, another vice is materialism. All things being bigger, all things being better, all things being newer. Men will be lovers of money. And then he said the third vice is hedonism. And he says this, men will be lovers of pleasure. Hedonism, which is what? Pursuing pleasure. I want to have fun. I want to to enjoy things. Nothing wrong with that. All in its proper place. 
But when it becomes a driving force behind your life, then it becomes a vice. And so now we have this universal craving for things, pleasure. And here's what happens. When you have people that live for self and you have people that don't want to take responsibility and don't want to make commitments, not even to God, no commitment to the church, no commitment to God, no commitments. When you have people that want all things bigger and better and newer, and then this spirit of hedonism kind of puts its flesh hooks in us. Here's what happens. When you have people that are craving pleasure and self-preservation, look what verse number 4 says. They blatantly stop loving God. So what do we have here? Nominal Christianity. Nominal Christianity, and this is what nominal Christianity is. And it's, it's just, as plain as I can uh, define it for you in layman's terms, it's Christians who are in name only. It is Christ having no bearing, bearing on your life. It is a minimalist approach to faith. Just enough. Just, a, just enough. Not all the way in, but just enough. The minimalist of faith is Christian by name only. And so Paul says the patternless church is a detached, dead. And number three, the patternless church is a delusional church. And he says this in verse number five. Look what he says. And this is something we quote periodically, frequently, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So the church now has traded fundamentalism for formalism. Appearance for authenticity. And I want you to know this morning that every one of us sitting in this church today should be fundamentalists at the core. I don't mean radical, legalist. I'm talking biblical fundamentalists. We know what we believe, why we believe it. We live what we believe. Nobody can change our mind. We're strong in our faith. We're strong in our convictions. There's no biblical illiteracy anymore. We know the book. We love the book. We're consumed by the book. The book reads us. Spurgeon said, go to many books, but return to the book. Yes. Yes. We need, and so we've traded now fundamentalism for formalism, appearance for authenticity. So here's what happens. You've got a self-absorbed culture. What do they do? They build a self-absorbed faith to accommodate. You got self obsessed people, they want a self absorbed faith. When I walk into a church, I want it to be all about me. So people are the central attraction, the architect of their own success now. Preaching is directed toward felt needs. Worship is more exciting, more stimulating, more relevant to the seeker. Style over content. Theology is irrelevant. Methodology, imperative. 
That's the patternless church. Freedom to be spiritual, but no sense of an obligation to be biblical. So now we have a church that are experts on externals. And let me tell you what it is. One writer said it so clearly. It is a new heathendom under, Christian, under the Christian name. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, Paul gives this very sharp rebuke to these Christians in Galatia for believing another gospel. He said, I am appalled that you have gone after another gospel. Rejecting, replacing, reinventing the gospel. Now, listen to me. I'm trying to inform you, church, that now we are embracing, we are consumed with a gospel of moralism that declares now that there are possibilities of behavioral improvements. How do you do that? You dig deeper within yourself. Instead of looking outside of yourself, you dig deep within yourself for improvements to behavior. That is a moralistic gospel. Now, listen, just about five or six years ago, we were talking about this prosperity gospel. Now this thing has taken on a whole different level, and now it is a moralistic gospel. No longer do we want you to worry about getting your needs met and healthy and rich and, and prosperity, but now we want you to be a better you. So how do you do that? You dig deep within you because in you is latent within you this power to change you. And that, friend, that's what all this gospel wants to do. It's a moralistic gospel. The church has succumbed to, a, to the logic of moralism and preaching morality and ethics without the gospel. Let me tell you something. It's a morality without godliness. You don't have to live godly. You just have to be a better person for God. And so now, listen to me, the sinner's problem is now behavioral and circumstantial. Sin is character flaws and bad living. And so we give you a checklist when you come to church for behavioral solutions and better living. And so now the church has become a doctor and we try to diagnose the human situation. And the conclusion is this, men are sick, men are unhappy, and men are victims of their own circumstance. You say, this is ridiculous. That's, yes, amen, it is. It takes more faith, church, to buy into that than it does that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. Now let me say something to you. What is the biblical gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. So the Bible calls character flaws a sin nature. And it is the doctrine of original sin. Bad living is the product of what? A sin nature. And guess what? Jesus is the solution. Not a checklist, but a cross. We don't need a checklist. I need to go to Calvary to find out what's wrong with me. Amen. I need to go to an empty tomb to know that, yes, he died for my sins, but he rose to give me eternal life, my friend, and I can live and live more abundantly. That's it, church. And so that's, listen, people's real problem is that we are rebels against God. And so now, listen to me, ignorance keeps people from understanding that they need a Savior. 
And here's what we need to understand. Man's essential problem. What is man's problem today? It's ignorance. They don't know they need Jesus. Can I tell you what salvation is in simple layman's terms? It's coming to the knowledge of truth. 1 Timothy 2.4 Salvation is when you come to the knowledge of truth. Two truths. I'm a sinner and Jesus is my only hope. That's the truth. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you've never given Him your heart, you've never given Him your life, there's two things you need to understand. You need Him and He's your answer. You need Him and He's your answer. That's, that's what you need this morning. You don't need a relevant church. You don't need an exciting church. You don't need a hip church. You don't need a fad church. You need to go to Calvary and be saved by the grace of God. That's what you need. And so, friend, listen to me. That's what it means. So the primary purpose of our church existing on the corner in Fort Stockton, Texas, at 1600 North Gillis Street, is to put man in a right relationship with God, not themselves. You're the problem. And you can't fix you. Number four, a patternless church is defective. It's not only dead, delusional, detached, but we're defective. Look at verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Patternless churches, this is, I want you to get this. Patternless churches maintain spiritual weakness by majoring on people's problems, their past, their pains, and their personal hang-ups. So when you go to a church and you feel like you're getting the help you need for your problems, your past, your pain, and your personal hang-ups, actually what's happening is they're making you weaker than when you were when you first walked in. And they want to keep you weak because leaders worm their way in to take advantage of people's problems and promise a quick and easy solution. And so these creeping in grab their followers, they, they, they demand their loyalty and their money and service. And so they're converts now. Listen to me. They're worse off than they were before. Because guess what happens? When I give you that quick answer that you're looking for, you still have your problems, you still have your pain, and you still have your past, and you still have your hang-ups to deal with. And you're more bondage than you ever have been. Aren't you glad you know who the chain breaker is? Man, I'm going to tell you something. I can't give you a quick answer to your problems, but I can tell you this. I know who can. I know a man who can. I know a man who can break the chains of whatever you're dealing with. Your past, your pains, your problems, your hang-ups. Jesus can break the chains. Set you. He said, I've come to, man may be free, and I'm going to set them free. I know they're going to be free indeed. Free from your past, free from your pains, free from, now you may not be free from problems. But they won't dominate your life. So look what verse 7 said. They're always searching for answers, but they're never wanting the truth. Always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of what? Truth. 
So there is this certain intelligence that marks the spirit of these last days. So here's what, here, here's what you need to understand. These, these guys, they know how to make things work. And they lead people astray. They have a problem with truth. You know why? Because truth takes me out of the center of my universe. I have a problem with truth because I don't want you to take me out of the center of my universe. So spiritually weak are given a lot of teaching, but they never get the essential knowledge that makes a difference in their life. So here's our strategy as we close this down. Here's the strategy of the patternless church. Target the spiritually weak. Tell them what they want to hear. And involve them in pointless and meaningless Bible studies. Where they never grow closer to God. Where they never, where they never, where they never surrender and sell out to the Lord. They just keep you stuck in your mess. That's what's going to keep you stuck in your mess. They want you to stay weak. You know how these patternless churches maintain their momentum? They keep people weak in the pews. That's what they do. Because the weaker you continue to be, the more power they have over you. And you'll do everything they say. You will. When God called me to this church 19 years ago this year, my objective was to work my way out of a job. You say, what do you mean by that? For you to know this book from cover to cover. For you to know every truth that's in this book that we can teach and preach in this church as long as we live on this earth. For you to be, for you to be Bible students. My objective is not to keep you weak, to, ca- to, to maintain power over you. I want you to know the book as much as I know the book. And I want you to love the book as much as I love the book. And here's the wonderful thing. God's doing that here. People know the book, and, and they're, they're, they're hungry to learn it and know it. We're not here to keep you weak. We want God to deliver you from your past, deliver you from your pain, deliver you from these problematic hang-ups that you're fighting every day of your life. And the only way we find those answers is where? In the book. Right? Remember, we don't always get rid of all of our problems. That's just part of life. So let me conclude with this. Verse number 9, two conclusions are drawn here in verse number 9. Paul just kind of pulls this thing together. Look what he said. Two things. They will not get very far, and their folly will be plain to all. So these erroneous movements will not get very far. Let me tell you something. Fads come and go. Right? Truth forever is settled in heaven. It's been around a long time. Amen? been around a long time. And they will be exposed. Watch out. And, and let me say something to you. They are being. Slowly but surely. God's just peeling, back the, peeling it back. Look here. Look here. You know why? God wants to see people come to the knowledge of truth. Peel it back. Peel. Peel. Some of you sitting in this church, you've had God peel it back. And you're like, wait a minute. Wait. What? What? No. I want to tell you. One of my favorite books I've read here recently by C.H. Spurgeon. Go figure. In 1887, you have to understand, let me build a little context. This, I'm concluding now. Let me build a little context right here. So this is at the end of Spurgeon's life, okay? So you need to understand where he's at. He's depressed. He's fatigued. He's exhausted. And he will die not soon after this point in his ministry. 
1887, he published a series of articles in his, uh, his uh, little, I want to call it a magazine. It was called The Sword and the Trial. And you can still get it. But he printed a series of articles under the title, The Downgrade Controversy. Now, I've got a copy of The Downgrade Controversy. It is very extremely hard to read. But if you get the gist of what he's saying, thank God for men like him. This is in 1800, y'all. He wrote this downgrade controversy and he denounced liberal theology. This new theology had begun to creep into the church and now the church was on the downgrade. Here's what he said. Spurgeon had four grievances against the church and he names them. And I want you to know how relevant this is. Number one, first grievance. A denial of the infallibility of the Word of God. Number two, a denial of the necessity of the substitutionary death of Christ. The third grievance was a denial of hell. And here's the big one. The fourth one is the affirmation of universalism, which contends that an individual's destiny is not fixed at death and that ultimately everybody's going to heaven. And I want to give you a quote. And so he summarized this and he spoke this at the Baptist Union. And he made a statement. He said, I'd rather be eaten of dogs because the future will vindicate me. I want you to understand what he says here. I'm quoting. We cannot hold to the inspiration of the word and yet reject it. We cannot believe in the atonement and deny it. We cannot recognize the punishment of unrepented and yet indulge the larger hope, which the larger hope is universalism saying we're all going to heaven. And I want to end with this. This this is very, it caught me. One way or the other, we must go. Decision is the virtue of the hour. So here's our takeaway. Number one, we should all be challenged to be faithful to our church and look for ways to invest in its preservation personally and physically. In other words, find something to do and do it with all your heart in the church. Number two, stay informed to unbiblical trends and movements that are spreading false teachings Get our head out of the sand because we have friends, we have family, we have children, we have generations coming up behind us that need to be saved. Number three, you ought to pray harder for your church and its leaders to be the church Jesus designed it to be and not the culture. And number four, we should come together as the body of Christ this morning before this study even commences And recommit ourselves and this church to God's purpose and pattern design. Amen. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning. I pray that God has spoken to your heart through His Spirit. I pray that you have been challenged. I pray that you that are sitting in this church that have never trusted Christ as your Savior. God has convicted you and made you aware of your need for Jesus. 
And I'm going to tell you something. If he's drawing you, don't ignore it. Come. Come and give your heart and your life to the Savior. Trust him. Trust him with everything in you. If you love this church and you're thankful that God has opened the doors of this building, we are held responsible before God in heaven to pray that God would protect this church, guard this church, put his angels at guard around this church. This is Christ's church. This ain't my church. This is Jesus' church. Y'all are God's people. I'm just an under-shepherd. I'm just an old servant doing what God's called me to do. But this church, for the hope and the sake of generations to come, of our neighbors, of our, 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 our fellow employees that we work with, our families, our children, our husbands, we ought to be on our face saying, God, we want to be your church. We want to be that church. We want to be a Bible church. We don't want to be relevant. We don't want to be exciting. We don't want to be hip. We want to be biblical. We want to be where, God, you want us to be. That's what we need, church.